When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Lola Pops Off About Dramas with your host, Lola. Welcome, welcome back, everyone, to another episode. And as you can see by today's title, we will be doing a What Went Down episode so that I can give you my final thoughts on Tale of the Nine-Tailed 1938, which is just season two of Tale of the Nine-Tailed. And I am very, very, very excited to actually be sitting down and talking about Tale of the Nine-Tailed 1938 by itself, kind of on its own in its own episode because I did talk about it briefly in my latest ramblings and musings episode, but I didn't get the chance to really go through and kind of parse through some of my overarching, grander thoughts on this drama. So I thought I would do that in this What Went Down episode. I will preference that there will be spoilers. I am going to talk about this drama as if you have already seen it. So if you have not seen it and you are planning on watching it, please please do not listen to this episode just yet. Please come back though, because I think it will be nice for you to kind of finish up with just kind of my little overall thoughts after you also wrap up watching this drama if you plan to. And if you have not watched the first season of Tale of the Nine-Tailed, I'm going to be honest by saying that I don't really think that affects you jumping into season two, which sounds weird, but we're going to talk more about that when I go through kind of my final thoughts about this drama. So it'll make more sense. But I will say if you are not planning on watching the first season, but you definitely want to watch the second season, you should go ahead. (laughs) Go ahead. There should not be anything to stop you there. But yes, let me go through my final thoughts on Tale of the Nine-Tailed 1938. I will start off quickly with the synopsis provided by somewhere online that I've gathered the synopsis from. And after I go over that synopsis, I will jump right into my final thoughts. So I am going to start here with a synopsis provided by Asian Wookie, as I like to use theirs, but there are definitely others online that are probably better. <laughs> but just to kind of get a quick gist of season two of Tell the Nine Tales, we have Yun, played by Yi Dong-wook, who gets involved in an unexpected case that leads him to travel back in time to the year 1938. There, Yun meets Ru Hyungju, played by Kim So-yun, again. She was once a guardian spirit of a mountain in the West, but in 1938, she is the owner of the best high-end restaurant in the capital city of Gongsun. When Ru Hyungju met Lee Yun for the first time, she was fascinated by him, but she couldn't have him. Now she meets him again and she feels excitement. Yi Yun also meets again his younger brother, 
Yi-rang. Meanwhile, Chun Mu Young, played by Ru Kuang Su, used to be a guardian spirit of a mountain in the east, and he used to be friends with Yi Yun and Ru Hongju. A case has led Chun Meng Yu to become hostile towards Yi Yun, and Yi Yun struggles to go back to his present time where his loved one lives. So that is the quick kind of rough <laughs> synopsis of Tale of the Nine Tale 1938. But to kind of just summarize a little bit more, this story does take place after we have met Yi Yun and his brother Irang in the future and <laughs> the present day. We have met them and his and that tells the story of the first season of Tell the Nine Tell. They are both nine-tailed foxes, as in the myth mythical creature, Gumio creature. And we get to see a lot of different mythical creatures emerge throughout the season one and season two of Tell of the Nine Tailed. But the other thing to note is that it is taking place in the year of 1938, which is also during the Japanese occupation of Korea during that time. So this story actually has this kind of history foundation to it that is actually not a lighthearted situation at all. However, the the story itself has very much a lot of lighthearted moments throughout it. So it was interesting that they contrast these two in this one story. But we're going to talk a little bit more about that as I go through my final thoughts. So let me actually start by going back and talking a little bit about the first season of Tale of the Nine Tailed, because I think that's going to help you understand my perspective on watching this second season. Now, I did talk about this briefly again in my little ramblings and musings episode where I mentioned my mid-thoughts, midpoint thoughts on Tale of the Nine Tailed. And I talked about how I experienced watching the first season. And the main thing to take away from me talking about my experience with the first season is that throughout most of the drama, like more than half of the drama, I remember distinctively thinking how I thought the mess, the writing was messy. I thought the writing was kind of lost and it was a little convoluted and it felt as if they didn't know which way they wanted to take the story. And it felt like that through more than half of the drama. I just remember thinking like, wait, which direction is this going? Multiple times, multiple episodes. And it was making the, the the watching process of the first season not as enjoyable as it probably should have been. The other thing about the first season is that it is, to me, it was terrifying. I thought season one was just scary. I don't know what it was about season one, but it was so scary to me. So the horror element of this drama, which again is prevalent in both season one and season two, but it was just so much more scary to me in the first season. And we'll talk a little bit more on why I think that. But it was very scary. I remember watching it being like, this is not something I want to watch when the sun goes down. So that was one of my other thoughts about season one. And then the other thing I mentioned about my kind of experience with season one was that after some point, more than halfway through the drama, getting close to the final episodes, did I finally feel that it hit its stride. I finally felt at some point that it just was like, oh, it figured itself out. It knew what story it was trying to finish up telling. And it was like, okay, we're just going to barrel down this route. And I'm going to tell you what I think it was in season one. I think it was the story of our two brothers, Eun and I think their story was 
the thing that they recognize as being really the meat and potatoes of Tale of the Nine-Tailed. And so they honed in on that in the final episodes and it was just magical. It was like the story, the drama came to life to me and I couldn't get enough of it. But that was like the last five, like last six episodes of the story. And I was like, oh, okay, we finally made it to the story. (laughs) But I will say overall, I did enjoy the chemistry between our kind of the the romance. I did enjoy all of that. I thought they were beautiful together, Boa and Wookiee. I thought they were great together. But then going into, like I said, the, the relationship between the two brothers, did I finally find that that was the story that I really think they should have been telling a little bit more focus in the beginning than even the romance. And so in saying that, that definitely brings me to my final thoughts on this second season. And that is because I realized, or I think they realized what again was their meat and potatoes of Tale of the Nine-Tailed. And it is the relationship between the two brothers. And the fact that the very opening kind of sequence of this season two was the focus on the fact that we were going to be talking about those two brothers and their relationship and this new kind of setup and new setting and this new time period. And then I knew we were on. I knew we were on. I was like, okay, they got it. They know what we're doing. They know what they're doing. We got this. And sure enough, that is how I felt throughout every single episode of season two. I felt like they knew the story they were telling, (laughs) unlike what I felt when watching season one. Now, the other thing to talk about this kind of starting of this story and how it opened up to me, it had to be the tone of this drama. There is, to me, a distinct difference between the tone of season one and the tone of season two. As I was saying about season one, I was terrified through most of it. Even while I was confused, didn't know half of what was going on. And I was like, wait, what story are we telling? I still was watching it and I was still like, I'm scared. I'm so scared watching this. In comparison to this season, and maybe the confusion even helped with the fear of the season one, but in season two, the tone has switched. There is definitely the horror element still throughout. We're dealing with a lot of these kind of mythical creatures that to me are quite scary. (laughs) So that's what always gets me. It's like they turn these mythical creatures into something very fearful. And I don't think they're supposed to be originally, but they are quite scary. So that is still in season two. However, the tone and the approach to how we interact with these monsters or these kind of mythical creatures of the story all are kind of in a very funny capacity. Even the scariest little, the creatures that we come across are still kind of comedic at times. And I really, really enjoyed that. And I appreciated that. And I think it took away a lot of the fear and that I felt while watching season one. And that was kind of toned from episode one all the way to episode 12. Now, the other thing that I think ties into the, the tone and the storytelling of this drama is the amount of episodes. In comparison, obviously, to season one, it has way fewer episodes, 
clocking in only at 12. And I have to say that as an advocate for no short dramas, <laughs> I mean, that's not true, but I am very cautious of dramas being shorter than 16 episodes, especially in these later, these recent times, because they're coming so prevalent, because I keep feeling like they are setting themselves up to do multiple seasons for a drama without actually planning out the the future seasons, right? And that makes me wary every time I see shorter dramas. It's like, mm, do you know the story you're gonna tell in this time frame, And is it gonna feel kind of completed and, and kind of organized by the end of these episodes? Or are you going to leave things kind of choppy and missing because you may or may not come back for a season two? And I am always nervous and apprehensive when watching short, shorter dramas. So going into this, I thought that would be the case as usual. However, it was in episode one of Tell the Nine Tales 1938 that I realized that they were going to take care of it. They knew what they were going to do. They, in the beginning of episode one, set up the entire story for us. They kind of opened it with this kind of really fun flashback cheeky moment of our young giving kind of like a voiceover telling us what happened, catching us up on what you missed last week on Glee kind of situation. And then introducing kind of where he is and the current story that we're starting in this season two. And after him introducing himself in kind of this new world, new setting, it also sets up the the framework of the story itself in that we have our young character being pulled into a different time period uh, where he has to basically retrieve something that he has to take back to the present day or in their sense, the future back with him because it will it doesn't belong in the era that it has been pulled into and it is his responsibility to go back and retrieve this item and he has to do this no matter what he encounters in the time frame he has a specific time frame that he has to complete this mission in that is our story setup that is what we expect to see at the end on episode 12 is he going to return to the future with the the item at hand or is there going to be some kind of hoopla that prevents that? That is the story. So at the very beginning, I trusted, I knew for a fact without a shadow of a doubt that they were going to tell this story cohesively and completely in 12 episodes. And again, I appreciated that and I loved that. And I felt so comfortable watching this drama, knowing that they were going to wrap this up and everything was going to be smooth and and seamless. I just knew it. I just knew it. I just knew it. Now, going into another element of the story and how the story is told and what to me helped it tell the story so much better than the first season was again this this confined time frame that we were in. But then it did keep with the monster of the week sort of thing that is in season one as well, where it felt like we were being introduced to these mythical kind of creature villains every couple episodes. And that was the creature villain that we had to kind of defeat or a young had to defeat. And that aspect of this drama, which again is 
also in season one, but that aspect in it in season two just made so much more sense because we felt like we were playing a video game, as in we know Yun has to get from point A to point B by the end of this drama. And everything that happens in between, we know are going to be obstacles that are going to try their darndest to keep him from doing that. And along the way, he has to create a team of of folks to help support him through his missions so that he can get to the very end. And I loved that setup. And again, we know that's the setup from episode one. We know that's what we're going to have to, we get to experience. So there was, again, some comfort level going into this drama, knowing the formula that it was going to be operating in. And it just made it so much more enjoyable to me because I understood the pacing. I understood what what I should be looking forward to in each episode. And I felt like, again, I was just playing a video game where I was expecting to like move the character through the different levels of the game so that we can get to the final boss, fight the final boss, and then we win, right? And that's so enjoyable. That is such a, like I said, such an enjoyable framework to operate in, even when watching a a story, a drama for me. I know it's like a video game setup, and for others that may not be ideal as far as consuming a story, but for me, it is a storytelling technique and I valued that and I really, really, again, liked operating in that framework when watching Tell the Nine Tell. Okay, so the, uh, now I think I'm done. I think I've talked enough about the, the storytelling aspect and I did mention briefly about the tone and how it's just a lot more comedic and kind of cheeky and, and, and there's like a lot of, there's some slapstick elements and lighthearted moments that I think just weren't as prevalent in the season one. But again, there are elements like that in season one, but it's just so much more <laughs> in season two. I mean, there's like, even in the first episode, the opening sequence of Yun kind of breaking the fourth wall and telling us like, hey, let me fill you guys in on what you've missed kind of thing. Like all of that was just so much fun. And it definitely set the tone for the rest of the, of the story. Now, the other thing that we have to mention that I think of course, is a major element of storytelling and telling stories are obviously the, the, the characters. Now, unlike certain aspects of a video game, <laughs> sometimes the characters come in and out and you don't, they don't have as much of depth as, say, a story itself would be. And I have to say that's something I don't want to, to kind of me mentioning that this drama reminded me of playing a video game. I don't want to boil it down to something as simple as that. I want to also explain how even in the midst of it having this very formulaic structure of a story, there was still this element of introducing and crafting character that was magnificent. And I can say that because as someone who struggled through the first season, <laughs> that was part of the element that kept me watching season one was this concept of character. And they're a very, very amazing job of crafting these mythical creatures and their kind of round, full characters outside of their kind of like superpowers, you know, in a way. And I feel like season two did that again, mag- just, just magically well. And it was very obvious and our returning characters like Ang and Yun, they were, oh my gosh, we're going to talk about them individually in a minute, but 
obviously with them, we had already met them. We kind of knew a lot about them already coming into season two, but they just stepped it up a notch and elevated those characters. And it was chef's kiss. And then you have them introducing us to new characters like Hyungju and Young, and giving us this opportunity to meet new characters, but in the span of 12 episodes, still build them to a T. I mean, build them with layers on top of layers so that by the end of it all, we we knew who we were rooting for. We knew who we were supporting and fighting with. And it was just, it just made the experience all the more better. So again, I don't want to boil this down to like, oh, there was a very formulaic aspect to the story. And it just felt like you knew what was going to come and what was going to happen. And then, no. I don't want to boil it down to that. I said that in like general, <laughs> but that is not all the story was. The, the way they handled their characters and the way they introduced new characters and still gave us the ability to connect with them and grow them and make them nice and round was was very, I think could have been very difficult and yet they did it. And so I was just so appreciative. I was so appreciative of that. Now, let me talk a little bit more in detail about some of these characters that I have to highlight. I am going to start with my absolute favorite character and the the nine of the tailed tail of the nine tailed 1938 but also in the first season it has to be Kim Bumzung he is my my heart and my soul he was my heart and my soul in season one and he remained my heart and my soul in season two when I tell you he is one of my favorite characters like of all time and it I think it has to do with their ability to make well it's not even them I think it's all Kim Bum. <laughs> he does this to me all the time he plays the perpetual little brother character I mean throughout his entire k-drama career and I think he does no other role better <laughs> Sorry, not saying he's one one note or he's very one faceted. Absolutely not. Kim Bum as an actor is marvelous. However, but if he wants to show his greatest chops, put him as somebody's little brother. <laughs> you get him as a little brother and all bets are off. He's going to rip your heart to shreds. He's going to make you cry and want to hug on him. You're going to fall head over heels from him each time. Each time. He does it without fail. And I don't know how he does it. I don't know why he does it, but he does it. And so him playing this little brother character in season one, obviously, in the season two, it just is him in his best role. I mean, it's really him in his best role. And I don't want to, like I said, boil him down to just being kind of that one note type of actor, but he's not. In each of those little brother roles that he has played in the past, he has always provided range and even those characters. And I have to say it was no different with our Enong because what I thought was going to happen with his character who, if we know, if you have watched the first season, spoiler alert, he ends up dying in season one. And so starting in season two, because we're going back in time, obviously he is able to be a character again and be alive and well. And what I was nervous about was that in season one, we watched the two brothers meet again as Long was trying to destroy Yun because they have this kind of very complicated past with one another. 
being that Rong is his half-brother, and so he's half nine-tailed fox and half human, and that leads to a whole other complex that we're going to talk a little bit more about in a second. But their kind of really tormented past and history with one another we watched them work through that to get to the end of season one where they had found their relationship and kind of repaired it and kind of built it and and kind of made it better and then he dies right so i had we had done all that work we had watched them struggle and fight and fight to to the point where they no longer had to fight and they recognized how much they actually cared and loved one another we watched that in season one so going into season two and then us having to backtrack i was prepared to be really frustrated and annoyed i didn't want to go through that process all over again of watching them kind of find their their footing with one another and having them fighting so that we can put them back together again. But what ended up happening, which was, again, just the writing done well this time around, what they ended up doing was not positioning them as complete enemies because we have Yun, who is from the present day, he's from the future kind of thing in this season, and he has gone through that work with his younger brother already. He has lost his younger brother. So he appreciates his little brother again in this this different time period. So when we get them interacting, we have Rang, Kim Bung's character, ready to fight and destroy and, and kill his older brother as that's his MO. <laughs> but he immediately is getting cut down at it, at every point by Yun because Yun's like, I don't have, we don't have the energy. We don't have the time to do that whole fighting against each other that we did in the past. Like, I love you. I adore you. You're my little brother. I'm your older brother. You love and adore me. Let us just be brothers. Okay. And he kind of takes this, this initiative to say, to grab Rong and let him know, you are my brother. <laughs> you care about me and I care about you. And that immediately kind of cuts cuts it and it stops him in his tracks of trying to evoke some kind of revenge against Yun because that was all of season one, right? So I was very grateful to see that very early on in this season two that we kind of ignored, kind of got rid of that aspect of the relationship and we allowed them to immediately start working together and growing together in this different time period. And it was so welcomed. Now, the other element of this story and the character of Rang that I want to mention is his overarching kind of character growth and development. Now, again, in season one, he has a very similar kind of story arc where, or character arc where he is one way kind of in the beginning and then by the end, he completely saves the day and ends up dying, right? <laughs> so we get to see him grow and change and, 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 and do better by the end of season one before he passes, right? But then in season two, we get to see him, this kind of younger version of himself who doesn't get the opportunity to really harbor that much resentment and harm for his brother as he does in season one. He gets to immediately jump into, hey, my brother is going to be leaving in a short time frame. I need to appreciate him and our experiences that we have together. And he 
gets to spend more time instead, instead of like hating his brother, he gets to spend more time on himself and kind of developing who he is and what he should be caring about outside of hating his brother. And that we don't really get 100% until the very end of season one with his character. So in this season, we really did get to go a lot deeper in experiencing our wrong character. And it was just so wonderful to watch because we get to see him recognize that he deserves love. He deserves to have people in his corner that are not just following him blindly, blindly, but like actually love and support him and can also protect him as his brother did in the past with his lovely mermaid girlfriend that he ends up <laughs> finding. So it was so nice seeing that he had a love interest in season two because he didn't really have that in season one. So it was so nice to see him kind of fall in love in this season. But then we also get to see his inner work on recognizing his, not even recognizing, but like healing his kind of inferiority complex that he has with being a half breed, as in being half Gumio and half human. That has always kind of fostered in him some kind of resentment towards himself, but also obviously his brother, because his brother's a full Gumio and he gets to see the powers of his brother as a full Gumio, where he, on his end of the stick doesn't seem to have or possess those same powers. However, throughout the story and throughout this season, we get to see him recognize his own powers and his own strengths and his own people that he wants to support and kind of protect and to take that upon himself and do that and and take on the weight of protecting those that he cares about and those that he loves. Yes, he does that in season one, obviously, because he ends up dying because of it. But in season two, what it, it did show is that he got the chance to actually sit in his power and kind of recognize like, this is what I have in me that I didn't really know I had. And and it comes from his his brother kind of calling it out to him and letting him know, I need you to believe in yourself because you have something in you that you have not unleashed yet. You have a power in you that you have not even tapped into yet. And I need you to believe in yourself as much as I believe in you so that you can pull from that when you need it the most. And we get to see him do so at the end of the drama. And it was one of the best scenes in the entire drama. Oh my gosh, it was such a good scene. I mean, when I tell you I've watched it more than once since then. I have watched it more than once since then. I love his character so much. And to see that kind of moment come to a head where he recognizes like, you're, I do have this in me. I have this, this, this not this gumio inside of me. Like I need to pull from this. It was just so good. <laughs> so good. So he's definitely my favorite character of this drama. And to me, the, the character that I feel deserved a lot of this work that they gave him in this season after we get to see him in season one end up dying. <laughs> so and even in this season, he gets to know that aspect of him. He gets to find out that far into the future, he ends up sacrificing himself for his brother. And so he ends up having to appreciate his time even more so in the current time that he's in. He gets to recognize like, hey, if I love this girl, I need to love her and protect her. If I know my brother's leaving me and I die in the future for it, I need to do what I can to appreciate him now. He has these moments like that in this season and it's just so 
so good and it just made his character so 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 full and I loved him even more than I loved him in season one and that's hard that's hard because I really loved him in season one so just amazing amazing character to follow I adore him now quickly just a bit kind of touch on Yun really quickly Yun is just himself as he is in season one his character is pretty stable is is pretty consistent and the coolest thing about his character especially in this kind of setup which is this like to me like this video game kind of experience where you need the character to kind of like navigate these different missions the cool thing about Yun is that he is a gumio he's a fox and this kind of idea of foxes and kind of fairy tales and things like that. And as a mythical creature, they are portrayed as being clever and sly and witty. And that is Yon in a nutshell. Like he is nothing but that. So it's always like you get to see him come up with these very unique and creative ways to kind of defeat his kind of oppositions at every step of the way. And that is just so much fun to watch, seeing the character always come up with something creative and kind of satisfying like this, like, what is gonna happen next? And then he always has us an idea or he always has this kind of unique way of defeating his kind of, his monsters that he's fighting each week. And I love that. I love that it was so much fun to watch that. And I appreciate that even more I think in this season because again of the way that it was layered as like missions to me it felt like each episode was like him overcoming these these missions and I think it was fun watching the creative ways that he would overcome them each time and I loved it I loved it I loved it I loved it I think they did a better job at develop, developing him as a character as a gumio, as an actual fox. I think they did a really good job of utilizing some of the traits that are typically associated with a fox-like person in this story and I and I loved it. I really, really did. And and I love what he did with his relationship with his two friends, Hongju and Mu Young, because that is how we were able to get so much background and, and information and history and kind of roundness for Hongju and Mu Young was their tie to Yun and how we got to see moments of them as young, as a youth, as children and how they interacted together and then kind of their conversations as adults, which definitely filled in some of the the holes and gaps like Hongju's love for Yun and how she always wanted him and he was like, no, 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 he was in love with his human. So we always, so we got to see a lot about their characters and their and with their relation to Yun. But that did not make them their characters rely solely on Yun, which I was nervous about because Mu Young, for example, he is the real reason why Yun has been not the real reason, he is the reason why Yun gets pulled into the past because he is in the future time and he steals this kind of guardian stone from the future and he takes it to 1938. And so Yun has to go back in time to retrieve that stone from him. And to me, his character originally seems to be set up on this kind of concept of revenge and kind of this, ex- this extreme, you know, sadness in regards to, and pity, like pitifulness regarding the death of his brother at the hands of Yun. And because that seemed to be 
all that he was kind of driven by, I was nervous that his character was going to fall flat because I just thought it's going to be nothing but revenge on his mind. Revenge, revenge, revenge. And we weren't going to see anything more going on with his character. However, what they ended up doing was associating with Moo Young his love for Hongju and and how much he how much he cared about her to the point of like a lot of the things that he was doing at times would be kind of altered or changed because of his feelings for her. And so it gave him a little bit more (laughs) to go off of than just revenge, revenge, I must get revenge. It gave him a little bit more to his character. And then I was like, oh, this is good. This is smart. This is wise. And then when, when they did that with his character, they also gave Hungju this perspective on him that also made you view him in a different light. The way that she looked at him, the way that she remembered him and recalled how he used to be when they were younger, it also crafted this image of this character that we should really be feeling for, that we should really be caring for, that that is actually really good deep down. And what has happened to him and, and what has changed him over time was not his fault, that kind of thing. And so it just, it just really helped his character feels so much more important than I thought it was gonna feel. And again, that storytelling and that's writing really done well because they knew how to, in a short time frame, really build up characters that I think could have been difficult had they not utilized so many different aspects of the story to support a character. And the same thing with Hongju. Oh my gosh, she is a queen. She has this this element to her, which is her kind of powers of being just super strong, which I really appreciated. This this kind of woman character who is portrayed as just being having this intense strength to her, right? And then on top of that, she's a she's she's like a little girl when she's around Yun to some extent because she just is like fangirling over him and she just like wants him to love her and always and he's just like no no no. So you have that a little softness to her, which is super cute. And then even her interactions with Moo Young, how you can tell she cares about him so much and she just wants the best for him. So you get to see that. And then on top of that, her girls, the girls that work with her at her restaurant, she those are her babies and she did she she will die for them same thing with her kind of right hand man he he i mean at the end of it that the whole moment of him dying and her being completely heartbroken i mean he doesn't end up dying they end up saving him but either way like seeing her break down over that it was just she was so beautiful. She was such a beautiful character to me. And like I said, her strength coupled with all these moments of her kind of softness and her maternalness and her love. It was just lovely to see all of these different aspects of just this one character. And again, writing done well, storytelling did well, done well. They could have completely made Hongju and Moon Young just these kind of sidekicks to Yun, and I don't think they did that at all. I think Yun, his character felt like he was passing through and the entire drama, that he did feel like the character that was thrown into their world. I mean, he literally was, but like he was thrown into their world and it didn't all just revolve around him in a way. He felt like he had to fit in to their spaces and their worlds and kind of navigate who they were. And I appreciated that so much because again, taking that off of Yun a little bit 
allowed space to build up these other characters that we don't know much about. We didn't know anything about, but Yun, we know a lot about, right? We knew him from season one. We get him, we got him, we know how he is. They just kept him stable and we kept him as we expected, you know? And then we had our new characters given the space and the, and the room to really be developed. And I think Again, that was great writing. That was great storytelling because they knew they had 12 episodes. So they knew they had to do what they had to do. Okay. And this is like original, I believe, right? This isn't based off of a a webtoon or anything like that. So I think that's why in the first season, I always complain about the writing in there. But mind you, there's a, it's, this is the same writer and director from season one. So to say there has been immense growth <laughs> is an understatement with our writer here. I mean, amazing job because this is an original story, I believe. And to know that in the beginning, they, they originally struggled with the, the story to then hitting season two and finding and hitting their stride and being like, yes, I know what I'm writing. I know what I'm telling and I'm going to do it really, really, really well. And I think definitely the case with Tell of the Nine Tell. 1938. Okay, so I did want to talk about those characters just kind of in general like that. But now I want to go ahead and kind of wrap up some more kind of like quick thoughts about the ending of this drama. So again, the the thing that I think I want to point out that I talked about a little bit in the beginning was that this is a very comedic, funny, you know, fun story at times. It really, really is. But it is actually still just kind of plopped down in this setting of a not so funny time in Korean history. This is during the Japanese occupation of Korea. It's closer to the end of the occupation of Korea, but it still is kind of at the height of it. And the fact that they drew this type of story in this setting was so confusing to me. I was like, are you sure you want to do that? You know what I mean? Like, because it was laugh out loud, loud, funny at times. There were so many kind of lighthearted fun moments. But again, we're talking about some of these characters that we were following being considered themselves independence fighters and things like that. So we were talking about some really serious historical moments or historical aspects. And yet it was shrouded with a lot of this kind of silliness at times. And I wasn't sure what, (laughs) why they would do that. But what I think they did really well with describing this, this time in Korean history was them taking it and placing it and from the perspective of these mythical creatures because mind you a lot of our story the characters that we're following are not are non-human characters right gumios and and gods and demons they're all these kind of mythical creatures and we are following their perspective but yet these are creatures that are kind of integrated and and, and operating in the human world day to day. And they pretend, right? Like they, they have this kind of higher, not even that they pretend, but they kind of have this like, not holier than thou, perspective, but they do have this perspective like, oh, those humans, we're over here and oh, those humans, right? But at some point in this story, there is this connection between the the mythical creatures who are living amongst these humans, recognizing like this is a country that they want to continue to live in and, and, and protect and, and, and keep safe, even if they themselves are not the humans that are 
really affected by what's going on right now. So I thought it was cool that they kind of took it from this other perspective. I'm not sure why they did it, right? But I will say that the way that they were able to kind of demonize, fortunately, the the kind of Japanese government and during that time period, they did it by actually making them into these kind of demon-like characters, as in these demon creatures. And I think that was obviously on purpose, albeit may seem a little bit of like, oh, this is this is heavy, but it's true. Like during that time, that was how they were viewed in these in this in this time period. So I thought it was unique that they decided to go ahead and straight up demonize those characters that were being representative of the Japanese government during that time. And then to show that it took kind of this this superhuman, supernatural fighting to kind of take them down and to kind of overcome them. I think that was also a testament to them describing the independence fighters during the occupation. They it took a lot of them to to do what they did, to to do what they had to do to fight against the occupation. And they themselves took on this kind of mythical form. And I think that was really important if that was kind of what they were trying to do with telling the story in the way that it did in this time period during Korean history. So just thought I would point that out because I think a lot of people don't really point that out as far as like, this is a story set during a very, very intense time in Korean history, yet we're laughing at points and we're thinking it's so funny and kikiing and like, oh my gosh, it's mythical creatures fighting. But I think there was something else going on there with using mythical creatures to tell this kind of story in the middle of this occupation of Korea. And I thought that was was important and I didn't want it to be missed on me. And I don't think it, I, it was missed on me at all. So yeah, I just wanted to point that out. And then the other thing I wanted to point out was the return of Boa in the end. Oh my gosh. So again, in the season one, we have Ia played by Bo, Joe Boa, who is his kind of love of his life <laughs> and his human, the woman that he loves, right? And the fact that even in the beginning when they were retelling that what happened in the past and in season one, I was nervous that they were going to kind of, I didn't know why she wasn't in this, this season and I thought, oh wow, so maybe something happened where Boa was like, I don't want anything else to do with Tell the Nine Tales. I didn't know. You never know these days. And so the fact that in the first episode when they were retelling the kind of recap of season one, they showed her just like she was, they didn't try to edit her out weirdly or anything like that. So I was like, oh, okay, so it should be fine. And then for us to go all the way to the end, which is the kind of final mission, which is to return home with the stone, but to his his woman, his wife, to return back to her. And then we get to actually see him returning to his GI played by Boa. I was so excited. I mean, I literally squealed. And if that would have been spoiled for me before I watched it, I would have been really upset. So it was quite a surprise and I was very happy to see her at the end and it was just so sweet and I missed her and I'm not gonna lie I, I'm such a boa stan so her not being in this season was really hard for me <laughs> but I was so satisfied to see her at the end because the story does have this very very sweet kind of happy ending now in saying that about ending and happy ending I have to mention that 
I believe they left something kind of un like something opened, ended, and we're not sure what's to come. So basically, one of the elements of the story that ends up happening or developing right towards the end is this kind of concept of an original mountain god who is purposely trying to gather these different pieces of himself to become whole again so that he can take on his original form as like the mountain god. And the problem is, is that he does come back at the end of the the season, but I'm not sure it's like resolved. Like, cause it's like he comes back and we get the stone back into the future, which is the whole problem is that the stone was in the wrong time period, which is basically where he was. And he was able, then he's able to collect the things that he needs to become whole again. So he needed to, so Yun needed to take that stone back to the future cause they can't coexist, you know? And he does that successfully. He does take the stone back, but doesn't, change the fact that he has been awakened, okay? Like that is a fact. This original mountain guy has been awakened, but now we don't know where he is. Like he just kind of like disappears at the end of the drama there. So I was like, wait, are they gearing up for a season three? Is there gonna be a season three? And if they put them in the eighties, I'm there. (laughs) I mean, I'm not gonna lie. like. I'm there. Like if they start moving throughout times with our, I'm there. Like I'm there. So anywho, I definitely say that that left a little bit of kind of like, hmm, I think they purposely did not close that kind of all the way up. I think they left that open for a reason to, of course, maybe leave it open to a season three, and I'm interested <laughs> as someone who's been fighting against multiple seasons for, for K-dramas for years now. It's been like a personal, I mean, I, it feels like a personal attack every time a season two gets announced or season three at this point, it gets, it, it's like a personal attack. However, I'm more and more warming up to it regarding certain dramas who I feel have set themselves up for it. The problem is when when dramas are just cutting themselves in half and being like, hey, this is going to be continued in season two. I'm like, guys, that was just you not airing a second half of the show. <laughs> so either way, I'm not going to go on about that. But I will say that that was something that got me a little intrigued, interested. And if they want to, if they want to, I might be down for it. <laughs> and it might not be with Yun as our kind of leader there. It may be wrong because he has at the end of the drama kind of awakened this, this, this Fox side of him that he never really had before. So it could be him leading the, the, the charge next season. And I would love that because I love him and his character. And he has a girlfriend who's so sweet. (laughs) Oh, she was so sweet. Him having a mermaid, (laughs) this, this, this half Gumio, half human, falling in love with the mermaid was just like, ah, I love it. And her being just the sweetest character there is, but also her being so in love with him that any turn she was ready to run to his defense, run to save him, run to protect him. Like he cannot get away from people like wanting to like cradle him and protect him. He cannot, he cannot get away from it. And the fact that she's like, 
stepping into that space now that Yun is has left him it was so beautiful to see her being like I'm gonna be here to protect you like I you got me I'm here for you and he's like by the end of it like what no I can protect her now and it's just is so beautiful it's so beautiful so just another aspect of this drama that was so well done that love story was so adorable and so lovely to watch and he deserved it. Rong deserved his love and he got it. So super happy for him. But yeah, I love, if you cannot tell, my final thoughts on the second season of Tale of the Nine-Tailed, which is Tale of the Nine-Tailed 1938. My final thoughts are just final thought. I absolutely loved it. I loved it so much. I loved it with my whole heart. I love so many elements of this drama. It had the, the, the action, the suspense, the horror was done really well. Like I said, not too scary for me. The way that it kind of set this story in history, I appreciated it so much more after recognizing kind of what they were telling. By setting them setting it in this time period, I appreciated the development of all the new characters, but then also of bringing back uh, Irang character and really bringing him on home. That was just done to perfection. I love the storytelling aspect of this of this drama where it felt like we were, like I said, playing a video game. It was so much fun. I love the tone in this drama in comparison to season one. I definitely have to give my hats off to the director, but definitely the writer this time around because I, I feel like I was personally attacking them with the first season every time I talked about Tell the Nine Tale and I feel like I can eat my words if we only look at Tell the Nine Tale 1938. Beautifully written, done so well, clean, crisp, finished to it. Like all the I's and t- all the I's dotted and all the T's crossed. They did that. I'm so, 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 so happy that they did this season. Again, not a big fan of season twos and season threes of K dramas, but if you're going to do one like this, you better do more. You gotta do more. I am so impressed, so happy with this. It is definitely right now rivaling um, favorite drama of the year for me right now. I mean, it just had so many of my favorite elements in it. I, it really did. I, I it just did. I. I did. I love, I love when you kind of form a team when you guys are fighting against a common enemy. I love the action. I love the mythical character aspect. I loved how beautiful Wookiee and Kimbum are. I thought just, I love the, the adorable love story between our mermaid and our half breed. <laughs> I loved, loved so many things in this drama and I cannot sing its praises any louder. I really can't. I don't know what else I can say to let you guys know that I adored this drama. Do I think this drama is for everyone? No. No, 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 no. I do not. Like I said, I think it's it fits a certain, it, it fits an aesthetic, I think. And I think it fits a certain type of watcher for sure. And I don't think this is for everyone by any means. 
But I think if you have any interest in those types of things that I have interest in, or you enjoy video games or even anime, I think you would really, really appreciate this story for sure. It was just so much fun. It it was so much fun. They did such a great job. The writing was so well done. I can't tell you. I mean, the performances were top tier. Of course they were. I, I would watch this drama again. I would totally watch this again. Like I said, I've already watched a few scenes over again. Most of them, a lot of the Edong kind of breakdown scenes where he kind of has these moments of like having to prove himself and show his strength and, and, and just grow. It was just so many good moments like that. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. Oh my gosh. I would recommend it to anyone who's interested in those type of stories, but I just know it also isn't for isn't isn't everyone's cup of tea. And I have to say it's totally to be the better season out of the two seasons because it definitely takes the best part of season one and bring it on home. It really does. So 10 out of 10. I loved it. Rivaling my my current favorite drama of the year right now has to still be Duty After School. So this is right now, I think, right there up there with Duty After School for me. I know I am surprising myself with dramas that are my favorite this year. I feel like in comparison to the previous two years, they're just totally out of my wheelhouse. (laughs) Totally out of my wheelhouse. A horror and a a sci-fi drama as favorite dramas of the year. Who? Lola? What? If you if you would have told me this two years ago when I started this podcast that these were going to be two of my favorite dramas, I would have been like, yeah, that's a joke. Because I watched Tell the Nine Tell. It was the same year I started this 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 podcast. So that's when I was watching Tell the Nine Tell the first season. So full circle moment there. But who would have thought it was definitely not on my list of favorite dramas that year. And yet here it is looking at being one of my favorite dramas of this year. So loved it. Loved it. Loved it. All right, guys, you made it through. I'm so glad I got a chance to talk about this drama. Like I said, I didn't do initial thoughts. I did a sort of kind of midpoint thoughts in the middle of a ramblings and musings episode, but I knew it deserved its own episode. So I'm glad I got the opportunity to do that for you guys now. So that is all. That is it for this episode. I want to thank you so much for listening. And whether you're listening in the morning or in the afternoon or in the evening, I hope you have a great day. So everyone, it's been real. Lola's off.